You're listening to L-Town Radio, the Livingston Library Podcast. There's practically no limit to what you can learn and see when you belong to the Livingston Library. From science and technology to grants and genealogy, our library is virtually an information galaxy. This library is yours and this library. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the August 2022 episode of L-Town Radio, the Livingston Public Library podcast. My name is Joe. I'm one of the adult services and acquisitions librarians here at the Livingston Public Library and your host for the show. Coming up later, as usual, Jessica will be by to tell us about some of the most exciting books that you can check out from the Livingston Library starting next month. Hong Mei will be back to share another special song, and later on, The crew will do some reader's advisory and tell you about some of the books that we've read lately that we can't wait to tell you about. But first, as I often do, I would like to start the show with a little bit of local history. As you know, here at the library we have a rich local history archive of all kinds of historical documents. Most of them are are located in our local history room uh, near the reference desk. And we have so much of these documents that Some of them are even scattered across our two basements. And now we also have a page of local history resources that was recently digitized by the Innovative Document Imaging Company. So if you were to go to livingstonlibrary.org slash newspapers dash magazines and scroll down about halfway, you'll see local history archive. So click on that and you'll see the new page that collects all of our digitized local history documents. We have, of course, a link to digitized editions of the West Essex Tribune going back over a century. We have digitized Livingston High School yearbooks, uh, currently editions from 1957 through 2009. We also have all kinds of photographs of Livingston history, as well as past events here at the Livingston Library. And we also have a page now of books of local history devoted to Livingston. One of the books that's available there is one that I have cited on this show at least once or twice. It's called Flames Above the Riker, Vignettes of Old Livingston, and it was written by Livingston historian extraordinaire Freeman Harrison and originally published in 1965, although the writings in the book uh, go back even further, all the way back to the early 50s. And As the subtitle says, it does offer vignettes of what life was like in Livingston, mostly in the late 19th century through the mid-20th century, although uh, there's even references to events happening well before that. And the book also contains profiles of a number of notable Livingston residents that you may or may not be aware of. And the piece from this book that I'd like to share in this episode was written originally in 1953 by Freeman Harrison, and it profiles a notable Livingston resident in Clara Moss. 
the title of the piece is called No Greater Love, and here it is, as written by Freeman Harrison in 1953. Far cry it is from this present time to the late 80s and 90s of the 19th century. The inevitable changes have come to this township of Livingston, some suddenly, almost cruelly, in the destruction of an old-time house or the opening through green woodland made by an unfeeling bulldozer, others slowly and in subtle ways. In those years, Livingston was a peaceful, generally well-kept town, populated by a sturdy, self-reliant people. Most of them had lived here since birth. This story, however, concerns one who, although she lived here a long while ago, did not belong to one of the old Livingston families. She was a newcomer. It is about a young girl, Clara Moss, who walked among us for a few years, attending the school in Northfield, then left this place for other endeavors. She was a valiant girl, and it may be well briefly to consider her time and her history. Clara Moss, she was born Clara Louise, but the second Christian name was not often used, was born in East Orange on June 26, 1876, the daughter of Robert E. and Hedwig Moss. In 1888, the family moved to Sycamore Avenue in Livingston. There, on the bend of the road and near the brook, she lived with her parents and brothers and sisters. With the young hopefuls of Northfield, Clara Moss studied and played. She was rather tall, attractive, with long honey-colored hair. Mrs. George Schultz, who went to school with Clara, remembers the hair particularly. Clara was a happy, pleasant girl, full of good nature. She spoke often of her resolution to become a nurse. The Mosses were a family of nurses. Of Clara's five sisters, two of them, Mrs. Margaret and Sophie, took up that profession. Some who were Clara's classmates in Northfield say that she was an average girl, seemingly not precocious or unusually ambitious. It would seem, however, that somehow they overlooked something in Clara. Her career, after she had finished with a little one-room schoolhouse, think of the far places she later went in pursuit of her calling, what she did when the great crisis in her life came, shows that within her was some hidden fire, some vital urge which, though concealed, drove her relentlessly on her way. When Clara was 16, the Moss family returned to East Orange. Already she had been working in the Newark Orphan Asylum, caring for the children there, and soon, in accordance with her ambition, she became a student nurse in the old German hospital, the Lutheran Memorial Hospital on 12th Avenue in Newark. She was following her chosen course, doing the work she loved. In 1895, she was graduated from the nursing school of the hospital, which institution is now named for her, the Clara Moss Memorial Hospital. The honor was well earned. She is the hospital's most famous nurse. The institution, moved from its former location, is in Franklin Avenue, Belleville, across from Branch Brook Park. Three pleasant, duty-filled years followed Clara's graduation from the nursing school. 
No one could be happier than she as she went about helping others. Then in 1898 there came the opportunity for greater service. She welcomed it avidly. The Spanish-American War was raging and the army needed nurses. She volunteered at once, becoming a nurse in the field hospital of the 7th U.S. Army Corps at Jacksonville, Florida. Later, she was in Savannah, and in the autumn of 1898, she went to the Army Hospital at Santiago, Cuba. As ever, her work was outstanding, as she cared for the sick and wounded servicemen. Early in 1899, with peace restored, she was honorably discharged and returned home. Eagerly, she took up her tasks as a private nurse, but this routine life, agreeable as it was, could not long endure, it seemed, for one so fervent as Clara. American soldiers were in the Philippines, helping to quell the insurrection of Aquinaldo, the native leader. Tropical diseases, yellow fever, typhoid, smallpox, and other scourges were rampant among the troops. Nurses were never more badly needed, and of course Clara responded to the call. It was a trouble spot a deadly place, with appalling sanitary conditions, but the young nurse was not daunted. If what Robert Louis Stevenson called the bright eyes of danger held any fascination for Clara, it was because in peril she found means to an end, and the end being service. I have the honor to respectfully request, she wrote to the authorities, that my name be placed on the list of nurses sailing to Manila, Philippine Islands, from New York, and that I be sent on the first transport leaving. Clara could brook no delay in this opportunity to serve. It must be the first transport. I am in excellent health, she added, and have a good constitution, and am accustomed to the hardships of field service. The response was quick in coming. Word arrived for her to leave for Manila only two hours before the ship was due to leave New York, and the eager girl, after a hasty packing, was on board as the transport sailed down the harbor into the sea. We're going to take a short break right here, and we'll conclude Clara's story in a moment, but first I want to tell you about the Weekends with the Oscars program that we have going on currently here at the library. As you may know, every summer we like to screen various nominees from the previous uh, Oscars Best Picture category, and we play them on the big screen in our program room, in a cozy air-conditioned room. And we started last month by screening Dune, followed by Licorice Pizza, followed by Belfast, followed by King Richard. And we have three more films to show you all coming up in August. Uh, all these films start on Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. So on August 6th, we'll be screening Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, which stars Bradley Cooper, Tony Collette, and Kate Blanchett. That film runs two hours and 30 minutes. On August 13th, again, that's a Saturday, starting at 1.30, we will be screening the film Drive My Car, which won the Oscar for Best International Feature, in addition to, be nominated, to being nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay, which was adapted from a story by one of my favorite authors, Haruki Murakami. And so I'm very excited to see this picture. That film runs three hours, so it'll be running from 
to 4.30 p.m. on August 13th, and we will conclude the series on August 20th, Saturday, with Steven Spielberg's adaptation of the classic musical West Side Story. Uh, That film, in addition to being nominated for Best Picture and Best Director for Steven Spielberg, also won the Best Supporting Actress Oscar for the performance by Ariana DeBose. First time in New York City. I want to be happy here. I want to make a life, a home. Are you ready? Tonight is about family. The first gringo boy who smiles at you. I never seen you before. I'm a Puerto Rican. Is that okay? Do you want to start World War III? You know, I wake up to everything I know either getting sold or wrecked or being taken over by people that I don't like. You keep away from him as long as you're in my house. I'm a grown-up now, Bernardo. I'm going to think for myself. Tony, we need you if we're going to war. Wonderful. If you go with him, no one will ever forgive you. Again, the Weekends with the Oscars series runs Saturdays from August 6th through August 20th, starting at 1.30 p.m. All films are screened on the big screen in our program room with English subtitles for the hard of hearing. Admission is completely free and open to everybody, and no registration is required. All right, the break is over. Now let's conclude No Greater Love, Freeman Harrison's story, of Livingston resident Clara Moss. In the Philippines, she was attached to the nursing staff of the First Reserve Hospital at Manila. There, she worked courageously in caring for the sick and wounded. Yellow fever was taking its grim toll, and recognizing its deadly power, Clara learned to hate it above all other diseases. Heart and soul in her work, She gave of her strength without stint until that good constitution of which she had written broke down under the terrific strain of work and the agony of the climate. What was known as breakbone fever seized her weakened body. 
she herself became a hospital patient with her life hanging by the merest thread. At length, she showed signs of improvement, and she was ordered by the government to return home. This she did in the summer of 1900. At this period, Havana, Cuba, was the scene of intense activity. Major General Leonard Wood, Theodore Roosevelt's close friend, was Governor General of Cuba, which country had been taken by the United States from Spain as a result of the Spanish-American War. Assisted by Major William Crawford Gorgas and other doctors, the energetic, competent Leonard Wood had given Havana, left in terrible health conditions by the Spaniards, a cleansing and deodorizing such as no other city had experienced in so brief a time, a veritable Operation Cleanup, as it probably would be termed in the phraseology of the present day. Never has the goodwill of this country shone more brightly than in Cuba at the turn of the century under William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt. Leonard Wood was their man on the spot. To the dismay of the authorities, the signal change in sanitary conditions did not result in removing or even diminishing the scourge of yellow fever, which had ravaged Cuba for generations and had spread to nearby parts of the United States. Major Gorgas was particularly puzzled, as he had felt certain that bad sanitary conditions caused yellow fever. In June of 1900, the United States government had sent to Havana a commission of four army surgeons to study the problem. The commission was headed by the brilliant Walter Reed, and the three other members were doctors Agramonte, Carroll, and Lazier. The search for the cause of yellow fever became more dramatic and more intense than ever. Clara Moss, slowly regaining her health in her home in East Orange, learned of this activity and she set her heart on going to Havana just as soon as she possibly could find the strength to do so. Inaction palled upon her restless spirit. They were fighting yellow fever and she was not there. It was an old Havana physician, Carlos Finley, who doubted at first because he had more faith than facts, eventually showed the way in the momentous fight against yellow fever. He insisted to the American doctors that mosquitoes carried the germ and that of the 700 species, only one was a carrier. It was the stegomaya, and the female of the species only was guilty. Dr. Finley asserted that he was certain of all this from long research. But some experiments he made in the effort to prove his theory to doctors were not conclusive. However, the doctors from the United States were beginning to feel that there might be truth in what the Cubans said. They surmised that he had not been sufficiently exact as to the time element in making his experiments. So, working on the assumption that he was right, they began experiments of their own. After countless trials, the doctors proved that mosquitoes were not infected by biting a yellow fever patient during the first three days of illness, and that at least 12 days must be added before the germ rendered the insect capable of transmitting the disease. Using their new knowledge, the doctors went to work. However, the results, though of great scientific value, were tragic. Dr. Lazier died of yellow fever in September. Dr. Carroll fell a victim and his life was doomed. Death was rampant.
but the remaining doctors, certain they were now on the right track, worked on undaunted. In October, Dr. Gorgas sent a telegram to East Orange. It was to Clara and read simply, come at once. Gorgas knew that Clara would respond, and of course she did. In Havana, she joined the staff of Las Animas Hospital. Her health quite regained, important work to be done with her handmaiden, danger, ever at her side. She was herself again, happy, eager, in her beloved profession. Las Animas was the Yellow Fever Hospital of Havana's sanitary department. On New Year's Eve, 1901, Walter Reed wrote to his wife back home in the States. In reference to yellow fever, his words were, It has been permitted to me and my assistants to lift the impenetrable veil that has surrounded the causation of this most dreadful pest of humanity and to put it on a rational and scientific basis. I thank God that this has been accomplished in the latter days of the old century. May its cure be wrought in the early days of the new. The prayer that has been mine for 20 years that I might be permitted in some way or at some time to do something to alleviate human suffering has been granted. The grim, odious business of experimentation went on, and in the spring, Clara was writing reassuringly to her mother in East Orange. Do not worry if you hear that I have yellow fever. Now is a good time to catch it if one has to. She wrote in this way because she had determined to submit to the bite of an infected mosquito as her part in the great experiments. She was strongly advised against doing so, but Clara, her mind made up, was not to be deterred. Early in June, she allowed herself to be bitten by a virulent mosquito. A mild case of the fever ensued. It would seem that the girl had suffered enough, but she was determined to continue on her heroic course. Midsummer came, and the good time to have yellow fever of which Clara had written to her mother was months past. Havana seethed in the pitiless tropical heat. On August 14th, in the Las Animas Hospital, she submitted for the second time to the bite of an infected mosquito. And that was the end of Clara's brave adventure in life. More than 60 years have gone by since Clara's gallant sacrifice, and yet her brief life still stands out clear-cut and shining. No one was ever driven onward by a nobler singleness of purpose than this dauntless girl who long ago went to school here as a child. Of all those who gave their life in Cuba in the yellow fever experiments, she was the only female. Her loyalty to her great purpose to relieve human suffering was strong, and she was faithful to it unto the end. Not often is it given to anyone to make a course so straight in this faltering world. She was 25 years old at the time of her death. It is entirely fitting that the hospital in Newark, where she was a nurse, is now named in her honor. That Uppsala College has named a dormitory for her. That many public institutions in Havana are dedicated to her memory. 
and that on the 50th anniversary of her sacrifice, Cuba issued a special postage stamp bearing her name. It is to be hoped that sometime this town, where Clara Moss once lived, may in some manner do her honor. Over her last resting place in Fairmount Cemetery, Newark, are engraved most appropriately the words, No Greater Love. Again, that was No Greater Love, written by Freeman Harrison originally in 1953, later published in his 1965 book, Flames Above the Riker, Vignettes of Old Livingston. We have print copies of that book available through our local history room. And as I mentioned before, now you can also read it digitally on our local history archive page. Again, you start at livingstonlibrary.org newspapers magazines. Go to our local history archive page and click on the books tab. And now, how about we have a little musical interlude thanks to our adult services and acquisitions librarian, Hong Mei. The song, Someone You Loved, is by singer-songwriter Louis Capaldi, a new artist from Scotland. After his EP in 2017, Capaldi took traction and toured with Sam Smith and Niall Horan. When Capaldi's 2019 album was released, Someone You Loved quickly rode to the top of the UK charts and became number one on the US billboards. This lyrical song was nominated for Song of the Year at the 2020 Grammys. Enjoying this beautiful song by this up-and-coming artist. This all and nothing really got away driving me crazy I need somebody to hear, somebody to know Somebody to have, somebody to hold It's easy to say, but it's never the same I guess I kinda like the way you know all the pain Now the day bleeds into nightfall Thank you very much for sharing that, Hong Mei. And now, let's welcome Jessica, the head of our Adult Services and Acquisitions Department, to tell us about some of the books that you can start checking out from the Livingston Library in August. Hello, L-Town Radio listeners. Are you looking forward to new summer books to add to your to-read list? Here's a sneak peek of what titles will be hitting our library shelves this August. Please note descriptions are taken from the publisher. The Properties of Thirst by Marianne Wiggins, August 2nd. Fifteen years after the publication of Evidence of Things Unseen, National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize finalist Marianne Wiggins returns with a novel destined to be an American classic. 
a sweeping masterwork set during World War II about the meaning of family and the limitations of the American dream. Sister Friends Forever by Kimberla Lawson, August 9th. This emotional novel from the New York Times bestselling author follows four lifelong friends as each faces a crisis in family, love, and forgiveness. The Family Remains by Lisa Jewell, August 9th. Each early one morning on the shore of the Thames, DCI Samuel Wasso is called to the scene of a gruesome discovery. When he sends the evidence for examination, he learns the bones are connected to a cold case that left three people dead on the kitchen floor in a Chelsea mansion 30 years ago. A Dark and Stormy Tea by Laura Childs, August 9th. A possible serial killer is on the loose and sends team maven Theodosa Browning into a whirlwind of investigation in this latest installment of the New York Times bestselling series. Girl Forgotten by Karen Slaughter, August 23rd. A small town hides a big secret. Who killed Emily Vaughn? Carrie Soto is Back by Taylor Jenkins Reid, August 30th. In this powerful novel about the cost of greatness, a legendary athlete attempts a comeback when the world considers her past her prime. From the New York Times bestselling author, Malibu Rising. Other Birds by Sarah Addison Allen, August 30th. From the acclaimed author of Garden Spells comes an enchanting tale of lost souls, lonely strangers, secrets that shape us, and how the right flock can guide you home. Which of these titles are you looking forward to reading the most? Visit us at the library and tell us what you think once you read them. We can't wait to see you. Bye. Thank you as always, Jessica. Now we're getting toward the end of the show, and usually this is around the point of each L-Town Radio episode where... I would ask the crew if they have any particular favorite books or films or music or other media related usually to some kind of holiday or observance or awareness week in the month that the episode's going to come out. But, you know, August is kind of a slow month for these things. There aren't really any holidays. Um, and also it's summer. You know, we, we don't want to have to do too much homework, you know. So this month, I just thought I'd ask if there are any books or media on any topic that the crew would like to recommend to our listeners. And here's what they had to say, starting with Hong Mei. As a book lover and a cat lover, I was so excited to find this book called The Cat Who Saved the Books by Sosuke Natsukawa. This fairy tale like book connects the struggles of life and hardship with the comfort of pets who are here to save the day. This story is about a high schooler named Ritaro who grew up with his grandfather, an owner of a bookstore. When his grandfather passes away, Ritaro is saddened by the bookstore closing down. But before the store completely shuts down, a talking cat appears, a tabby named Tiger, who claims he needs Ritaro's help to save the books. With the cat, Ritaro goes on an adventure to save the books, meeting many people along the way. Through the heartfelt connections, Ritaro discovers friendship and meaningful connections in this light read. As a cat lover myself, I would definitely recommend this easy read 
to other cat lovers. Thank you, Hong Mei. And now, once again, here's Jessica. Hello, L-Town Radio listeners. For the past year or so, I have been in a reading slump and have really had to push myself to read and enjoy what I was reading. That was until this past week where I read four books within a week and thoroughly enjoyed doing so. During this week, I started off with reading Sister Stardust by Jane Green, a novel inspired by a true story of the swinging 60s. I then followed up by reading the August 9th Bookish Vibes book club choice, The Living and the Lost by Ellen Feldman, which is a fascinating story of a Jewish woman who returns to allied-occupied Berlin from America. Ellen Feldman will be joining our book club on Zoom, and I am super excited to be able to ask her questions and discuss the novel with her. I followed this book by devouring Greenwich Park by Katherine Faulkner. In this book, Helen and her husband are expecting a very wanted baby. At Helen's prenatal class, she meets a woman named Rachel, who is also expecting. However, Rachel drinks and smokes and doesn't seem very maternal. This thriller kept me engaged, and I never suspected the outcome. I finished out this week of reading by taking a trip to Nantucket through Nancy Thayer's Summer Love. This story is told in the present day and through the past of 1996. It's about four friends, the relationships they make, and the beach that brings them back together again. Such a pleasant read. Thanks, Jessica. You know, it's funny I've been in a similar, what you might call slump, over the past couple months or so with my own reading. I haven't read as much as I usually do, and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that I haven't found many books that are on my wavelength or that are in the mood that I'm usually looking for. And I thought about it and realized I hadn't been reading much short fiction, and I love reading short fiction almost probably more than I love reading novels. So last month I picked up this book called Jerks by Sarah Lippman. It was published by Mason Jar Press earlier this year. And Sarah Lippman is a writer that I got to know some years back when I would see her perform at various readings across New York City. And she's just a a brilliant short fiction writer. She is magnificently observant and savagely funny, but she can also wring these really powerful emotions out of you. And and she does it all within really, really small spaces, literarily speaking. She can, within the span of a paragraph or even a sentence, just kind of bring you on these emotional journeys with these characters that are so real and so unique. Um, they're, they're like people that you didn't realize you knew before you saw them in the pages of a Sarah Lippman story. They're, they're very recognizable, but not cliche, if that makes sense. Um, there's a quote, a, a blurb on the back of the book from an author named Robert Lopez that I think really sums up uh, what makes Sarah Lippman so great. Robert Lopez says, Sarah Lippman is a master of the absurd realities that comprise our American domestic lives. The stories in jerks crackle with urgent electric prose that sets fire to every sentence on every page. Funny, daring, brutal, honest, brilliant. Lippman is dazzling. So again, I highly recommend the short story collection Jerks by Sarah Lippman, published earlier this year by Mason Jar Press. You can check out a copy in print from the Livingston Library. And if that copy is not available, uh, we also have a copy of one of her early earlier story collections called Doll Palace, 
which you can find only on the shelves of our indie collection near the circulation desk. Well, that'll do it for this episode of L-Town Radio. Thank you to Jessica and Hong Mei for your contributions this month. Thank you to the late Freeman Harrison for writing No Greater Love, the vignette of Old Livingston that I read earlier in the episode. And of course, thank you to that piece's subject, Clara Moss, for all her heroic sacrifices throughout her life. Thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. I hope you'll tune in again next month. Don't forget, you can listen to and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. You can also follow any one of our social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can read our daily blog at blog.livingstonlibrary.org. You can visit our website, livingstonlibrary.org, to search our catalog or use our many, many digital resources 24 hours a day, including our new digitized local history archive. And of course, our building is open seven days a week for all your library needs, so I hope you'll come down and see us in person sometime. Until next time, stay safe, stay kind, and stay curious. <laughs>